Why Would No Date These Guys, a podcast where we explore sex, dating, and relationships. I'm Naomi Guy, and I'm Joel Guy. And today we are sampling, Joel, why don't you take it away? Jaritos, uh, natural flavor lime soda. Um, for those who don't live in Arizona, this may be a regional thing, but Jaritos is a popular um, Mexican, Mexican soda. Yes. Uh, they have a number of flavors. I got a 12-pack of them, and we will slowly be consuming every <laughs> single one. But yes, slime flavor for today. Naomi, shall we? Cheers. That'll pick up well on audio. Mm-hmm. Well, it tastes like fake lime. It's inoffensive. This is... It'll do a, on a hot day. This might be worse than Mountain Dew. No, it kind of tastes like... Um, Lime-flavored Gatorade, but sparkling. You're so good at these descriptions. Thank you. I am an odd. No, that's, that's on point. That's on point. Yeah, I, I don't hate it, but it's not doing anything for yeah. me either. Yeah. So today we are going back to our normal content. Oh my God. I know, this is so crazy. We're actually going to be talking about dating today. Um, we are doing a book report on the curious history of dating from Jane Austen to Tinder. And... Um, I just wanted to give a brief description of this book because I think this book was pretty interesting. Um, It describes political movements surrounding sex, dating, and relationships, the dress of the time. It goes goes time period from time period. So we start in the 1700s and move on from there. Um, Every major uh, time period, basically. Um, There was propaganda that was brought up of the time period, issues with sex, including like STDs and policing and virginity expectations at the time. Um, So I would recommend this book. Joel, I have a question for you. Oh, no. What do you know about the history of dating? I don't know anything, Naomi. That's why I thought we were reading this book. Um, I I have some assumptions. Uh, we, We talked about the history of marriage and, you know, that touched upon this i didn't even realize that i did the history of marriage and the history of dating yeah so i'm i'm kind of in the dark on this my assumption is dating wasn't really a thing until probably the 18th century i assume what do you define as dating going out without your parents being involved okay okay and even then it was probably like arranged dating to an extent yeah I'm going to go out on a limb and think women didn't really have the opportunity to go out with men until probably the 19th century. That is men of their own choosing without parental consent. Okay. Because I'm sort of familiar that in the 1910s to 1930s, there were a series of women who were, you know, doing crazy stuff like smoking cigars and wearing pants and going out on the town with men who weren't either a guardian or somebody who had already asked for their hand in marriage. So yeah, I'm going to guess that what we think of as dating, getting together with somebody who is not related to you, who your parents didn't set you up with for the purposes of potentially just casual sex, maybe something long-term, that's a very new invention. Okay. And my guess is that started probably in the 1960s. Okay. Maybe maybe 50s. Okay. So this book goes, um, it starts in the 1700s, like I originally said. Um, And it starts off and it talks about how in the 1700s men found wives. And it talks about... they hit them over the head with a club and drag them back to the cave? And they were like, this is the one for me. Mm -hmm. That's exactly how it happened. And then to prove their masculinity, they went out and killed a saber-toothed tiger. Wow. Yeah. I'm learning so much from this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, they... 
how men started um, in well, how men traditionally found wives in the 1700s, if you weren't of a high class where there was a lot of like debutante balls or coming out parties, um, men would put personal ads in the paper. I'm not realizing that our parents are like really, really old. Well, newspapers are pretty old. <laughs> no, I was talking about the fact that that's how they met. Oh, boy. They're going to listen to this and be so happy that we're making commentary about it. Yep. So they found they put personal ads in the paper for specific qualities. So like, I want a nurturing woman or I want a um, loving mother or something of that sort. Um, but only men could do this when they were looking for a wife um, because it was improper for women to do so. So did the book talk about why this practice started? Was it that there were a lot of single people moving around the country slash world who didn't really have any connections in new cities. It doesn't really say why it started. It just mentions that that was the way that 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 was like the traditional way that like courtships and marriages started because during this time, marriages were still for financial benefit. Yeah. And so it wasn't as if these men were looking for love. It was more like, Hey, I need someone with a good upbringing um, who can mother my children. So the assumption still is that these men are going to be very wealthy and that a poor man wouldn't have the opportunity. Not necessarily. Um, You can assume that basically because, um, like I said, marriages were for financial benefit of both the father and the um, husband. So I think that it's a good assumption, but I, as this like chapter went on, it talked more about how, there's different levels of society that um, had different traditions for courtship. So this is talking about like just casual courting, but then there's higher classes um, of society that um, you only met your husband or wife through um, a coming out ball Mm -hmm. or a debutante ball or something of that sort, or you were set up through knowing their family. So um, it goes in and talks about how um, men were supposed to look in this time period. Um, Physically speaking, the ideal Regency gentleman was tall with a fine head of hair, a slim waist, and a buff chest. Given that CrossFit wasn't on the cards, men were even known to wear corsets to achieve the right body shape. So not only were women wearing corsets, but men were also wearing corsets in, in order to define their bodies in the best ways. It gives my chest such great definition. (laughs) So um, it goes on to talk about why women um, were supposed to have um, people with them on, like chaperones on dates with them. Um, The Red Barn Murder in 1828, by which a man named William Corder lured, seduced, and killed a 20-something woman named Maria Martin by advertisement, only the desperate did, there was always the most traditional route of attending a ball or even a public event. Women who couldn't attend the theater, a dance, or dinner without a chaperone, so balls were the one of the few guaranteed opportunities for flirtation. Although still under the watchful gaze of an elder, here were a few hours where you could make some eyes at the potential partners, giving them a closer face-to-face examination, so as you took your position opposite of one another at a dance. Rich families invested a large sum of money to give their daughters a season in London, which ran from March to June. Coming out was crucial crucial if you want the opportunity to find a rich husband. 
but it was paramount that a woman didn't reveal her game. The most desirable location at which to find a husband was an exclusive club called Almax, also known as the Marriage Mart. So like I mentioned before, not everyone had the opportunity to um, have coming out parties or um, attend a debutante ball, but there was opportunities for um, men that were still seeking husbands, like I mentioned with the personal ads. Men seeking husbands? Sorry, men seeking They were a lot more accepting in the Victorian times. They really were. No, I was talking about, I was just thinking while I was reading that, that coming out was like very big back then. And now it's like you coming out is like kind of shamed still. So I'm just like, pick a side. (laughs) (laughs) So um, it goes into talking about like what, how they dress during this period. And it talked about like the specific tailoring and um, there wasn't, you, you covered the large majority of your body um, because you didn't want to give off the impression that you were, um, worldly as the book calls it. I, I want my body to be pearly white, never having been exposed to a speck of sunlight. I don't know what you're talking about. That's what your body looks like right now. You still got yeah. a debate body. Oof. I want that sweet pasty skin in a partner. <laughs> So um, it goes into talking about the acceptable, socially acceptable rituals of dating or courtship leading to marriage. Um, there was a courtship was the traditional way of doing things. So um, men and women needed to be formally introduced to one another in order to talk or dance. And they never call each other by their first names. Women needed to be out. So they needed to ha- be of age in order to, re- to reply to men only when approached first. And other ways, they could only speak when asked questions by a family member. And in theory, the older daughters of the family needed to be married off before the younger ones could enter the flirtation game. And at all times, whether at a ball or a country walk, if there was a notable gentleman present, women needed to be accompanied by a chaperone, which was frequently their mother. Still, a ball did give opportunity for interaction with the opposite sex, even if it was frustratingly regimented. Women had to dance with everyone who asked them and or else no one. You could not demonstrate preference over dance partners. Unmarried men and women were not permitted to dance together for more than two sets and only touch through gloved hands. Even handshakes were out of question. Basically, you could expect about as much contact as at your junior school, junior school leaving. Whoa, (laughs) at your junior high disco. On the other hand, there were um, already officially entangled experiences, far greater thrills. Was your partner's dance with another lady as innocent as he he intimidated? What is this wording? With the help of so-called jealousy glass, a mini telescope with a mirror built from left to right, you could side eye on his flirtations off the dance floor. Wait, this was supposed to be an inconspicuous device? And yes. you are with a telescope on the dance floor? No, so basically it's like, it looks like a mirror, but it's also, well, no, it looks, it's a mini telescope, but you can see other sides of what you're not supposed to see. So it's kind of like those glasses that you got in like one of those like funhouse boxes when you were younger and it would have like a mirror in it so you could see all around you at once. Just James Bonding at the I, dance? Yeah, I'm assuming that's what it's Okay, like. James Bonding would be a great term for like pairing James up at a dance. Um, th- th- this is relevant. I think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but I still find it continually hilarious that one of our sister schools in high school had rules at school dances of how close you could dance together with a couple 
And when couples were getting a little too close and things are getting hot and heavy, parental chaperones or teachers would approach, push them apart and say, leave room for Jesus. It got so bad one year during my high school time that um, a teacher who no longer works there for good reason um, decided that he was going to bring a squirt gun and squirt people that were getting a little too close. That doesn't seem sexual at all. Nope. Okay. So there was this thing called fanology. Um, I don't know if that's actually the proper term for it, but this is what they um, mention it. And that's what they name it in this book. So when you're at a dance and you want to flirt with someone, but you can't outrightly flirt with them, you give different um, signals via your fan. So this is all, this is a woman's touch basically because men didn't carry fans on them at the time during balls. So you let the fan rest on your right cheek means yes. You let the fan rest on your left cheek means no. Dropping the fan means we will be friends. Carrying an open fan in the left hand means come and talk to me. Fanning slowly means he liked it, so he put a ring on it, which means, like, I'm married. Fanning quickly means I'm engaged. Opening a fan wide means wait for me. A half-closed fan pressed to the lips, you may kiss me. A twirling fan in the right hand, I love another. Twirling the fan in the left hand, we are being watched. Placing a closed fan on the right eye, when can I see you? Shutting a fully open fan slowly, I promise to marry you. Drawing the fan across the eyes, I am sorry, and placing your fan near your heart, I love you. Is there a Duolingo for fan etiquette? No, there should be. I think it's really funny. Uh, This feels like... I know men do this, but I think the better example is when women tell other women, like, not to respond too fast to text messages. Be like, oh, if you respond immediately, he'll think you're desperate and he'll never talk to you again. Or all this advice in our culture about, like, when you should have sex with somebody. Yeah. It's like, if you have sex with him on the first date, he won't respect you and you'll never talk to him again. No, use Steve Harvey's advice, which is what, like, 90 days? The yeah, 90 day yeah. rule? Yeah. But, but. This idea that everyone intuitively understands what you mean when you're twirling the fan while balancing a beach ball on your nose or whatever <laughs> you said is, is is very strange. Yeah. And unfortunately... What if you get your right left mixed up with your left well, and then yeah. you give them the wrong impression? But, but unfortunately, it also leads to some consent issues where someone can be like, well, she was leading me on. She was twirling her fan in her right hand yeah. while holding the fan, the other fan up to my lips. Yeah, it... it one of the biggest issues in dating, and I get people are awkward, people are weird, but this inability to have conversations is just a death blow to people who who think that consent and the ability of people to make choices is important. Consent wasn't a thing in the 1700s. Uh, I'm going to... Yeah, yes and no. My understanding is... Like, spousal rape wasn't really a thing. No, but, but what I'm saying is any sort of consent, whether that be, like, no, sexual be, consent be, no, or because marriage consent. Even as you're describing it, maybe women didn't have the ultimate say in who they married, but there still was a lot of, like, social pressure to not approach people without their consent. Yeah. And, and so 
there were these these etiquettes and these rituals designed to keep women, you know, pure. And there was all these like systems in place that were designed to prevent women's chastity from being violated or anything, whether with their consent or not. And, and so I, I think it existed. It definitely wasn't understood the same way. Yeah. And I, I, I think there was probably a lot more sexual assault than we want to give the Victorians credit for. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I would say that I watched Bridgerton both seasons. And that's a historically accurate No, but what I'm saying is your your girlfriend also watched Bridgerton. And so maybe if I talk to her about this, because there's yeah, a I lot of I don't do a fan, podcast with her. There was a large fan um, presence in Bridgerton, and I'm not saying that's historically accurate, but reading this fanology guide, they were giving off all the wrong signals. That's interesting. Yeah. You should become uh, one of those experts on, who consults on TV shows. Oh my God, yeah, I want to. That'd be so cool. But also, you and Lauren talking about Bridgerton would be a great episode. I mean, maybe when the next season comes out. Okay. We'll do like a three for three. She's next. a little busy right now. What are you talking about? She has nothing to do as she waits for a job. <laughs> Let's keep rolling. Um, so the legal age of marriage was 21 in England and Wales at the time. Ha! But many women were married between the ages of 17 and 20, which was allowed as long as the parent didn't explicitly forgive it. The settlement, so what you were married for, um, outlined the financial details of the marriage and included the dowry amount, which was how much the woman was to receive and how much the woman was to receive in pin money, which is like her allowance for clothes and hobbies and what her children should inherit and what her financial circumstances would be after her husband's death, known as the jointure. Given that most Georgian women had no means of their own, it was vital that the details of her future financial life be outlined in this way. So it was kind of like a prenup in a sense. It was like, this is the outline of our financials before going into our marriage. Um, But as formerly mentioned in this quote, it talks a lot about how women don't have their own money. And if they do, it's like walking around money. It's not any sort of financials that um, are actually needed to sustain a life. If a woman was married and their husband died, did they get that money to utilize or were they expected to remarry? No, women were not allowed to hold any large sums of money. So all of that was held in the bank or it goes back to the father of the um, of the husband. Okay. I do want to cut in quickly because you mentioned the minimum age was 21. Yes. And I thought that was kind of funny because it's my understanding that that does not match the United States right now. So I looked it up and it appears the general marriage age um, for most states is 18. It can go lower, but like the understanding is kind of the baseline is 18. Yeah. Uh, strangely enough, you can't get married without parental consent until you're 19 in Nebraska. Okay. So another reason not to move to Nebraska. Another Thanks, reason, guys. yeah. Uh, but then something that's interesting is um, there's still ways you can get married at 14 or lower with parental consent in the United States. Yeah, I knew about that. Uh, and yeah, there's a shocking number of states that authorize marrying below the ages of 14. So for Alaska, the minimum marriage age is 14. With parental consent, a person can marry at 16. With parental consent and judicial approval, a person can marry at 14. In California, the minimum marriage age is zero. There is no state law that mandates a minimum marriage age. 
So with parental consent and judicial approval, a person can marry under the age of 18, but the partners and the minor's parents have to meet with uh, court officials, must rule out abuse or coercion. There's also a 30-day waiting period for minors unless they're 17 and graduate high school or one of the partners is pregnant. Um, age of consent for statutory rape laws is 18, but a marital exception exists for married adolescent partners. An exception exists for consensual sex between a minor and a person who is three or fewer years older or younger. Uh, and then there's other states around the nation where you can get married at uh, 14 or younger with parental consent, and that is really cool and good. Uh, one thing that I found was interesting was a, a piece on worldpopulationreview.com discussing marriage age by state in 2022. They says in the past 15 years, about 200,000 minors have married, which seems a little high. 200,000 minors. That's a lot. Yeah. Um, I mean, 200,000 divided by 15, uh, that's less than, okay, that's that's more than 10,000 a year. Well, you know that person that dad knows that got married at 14 to a trucker? Mom? No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just wanted to throw that in. It's fascinating that the Victorians were, in many ways, more prudish than we are on these matters. I don't know if we needed to get into a whole discussion about consent this episode. Maybe that needs to be its own sex ed Well, episode. I also want to talk about, like, the fact that I highly doubt that a lot of these marriages are being recorded and the age of the people in the marriages sure. included are being... So this could be completely, like, false in the notion that, like, mostly all women were married, married between the age of 17 and 20 with parental consent. Oh, that's So fair. I'm assuming that these, these numbers are a little off. So, like I mentioned in the last quote that I read, um, it talked about how women don't have um, any financial say in things. So, the only women that were allowed to um, carry their own money and have their own assets were mistresses and prostitutes. So, they these were considered free women because they weren't pushed around by men financially or in a marriage. They didn't have to marry and they had their own place and their own money. Um, so there was a large number of mistresses that royalty kept that had their own money and were, um, some of the top notch mistresses of the time were in command of about a hundred, uh, thousand pounds a year, which is a lot of money at the time. Um, but they were basically the, um, modern day equivalent of sugar babies, essentially. Well, they're, they're almost kind of like witches too you know they they stand no they stand apart from community norms yeah they're shunned because they have power independent of masculinity and they know how to utilize it i'm not saying the analogy is perfect but you know there's an ongoing conversation in the witch community about how there's so few roles in society that aren't defined as like the mere version of a man's role you know you have doctors and nurses there's this expectation that more women should be nurses than they should be doctors. Yeah. Um, you, you, you have something like a witch where a witch is a fully realized identity that doesn't really have a masculine equivalent. You can be like wizards and warlocks, but there were witches in rural communities for thousands of years who would provide like folk medicine and traditional ways of dealing with sickness and pregnancies and whatnot. And that's something that's like very much feminine knowledge that men did not have access to that allowed them to be independent and like respected members of the community. I had no idea. Yeah. Well, I had idea about witches, but. Your pagan brother over here. Your pagan brother. My pagan brother. So we're moving into the early Victorian era. So this 
Sorry, I have to stretch. Hey, oh, man, really doing the ASMR content for our <laughs> listeners. This is going to be a Patreon exclusive, guys. So um, I talked about how during the 1700s, there was a lot of marriages that were um, encouraged because of financial reasons. So in the early Victorian era, love became the main reason to marry, and they moved away from marrying for financial reasons. So love, however, remained the watchword, as marital advisor John Maynard wrote in 1866, rather refuse the offer of 100 men than marry one you do not, cannot love. For a woman, the pursuit of love, above all, was certainly a noble cause. When a woman loves a man so much that she is ready to give up friends, position, and comfort for his sake, she is worthy of all commendation, for she proves herself high-souled and magnanimous. And yet, exercising prudence was still advised. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are determined to make a sacrifice to be quite sure that the object is worthy of it, a lifelong regret not unfrequently follows a so-called romantic marriage. Good women were not presumed to be sexual. An opinion offered by physician William Acton, the majority of women happily for them are not very much troubled by sexual feelings of any kind, and so romantic desire retained an innately chaste quality. And, as 1897 Manners for Men warned, should a marriage follow upon such courtship where a woman takes initiative, the union is very seldom a happy one. I'm picturing, like, you know how a lot of women go for, like, vaginoplasties yeah. and like cosmetic surgeries yeah. these days because they feel uncomfortable with how their body looks because media has like convinced them that yeah. there's only a normal default. A lot of Victorian women go to the doctors and be like, I want that Barbie doll surgery. Yeah. I can't be a sexual being. I want you to just seal me up down there. Hot. <laughs> <laughs> That's like tucking, but to the extreme. Yes, Naomi, <laughs> it's a lot like that. So engagements could take up to five years now for financial reasons. So much like today, um, people had to support themselves and pay for everything if the marriage was not for a financial agreement. The plus side was that men no longer had to ask for the father's permission for their daughter's hand in marriage. Does the book talk at all about like some of the reasons this change may have happened where it wasn't really about money and it was about love? It more talked about how um, this had changed because of the union of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert in 1840, which was a love union, which inspired more people to be like, wow, maybe I do want this feeling of love um, to get married. Well, when we say love, I mean, they're also not even including sex in that. Is it like, I can tolerate the presence of my partner? They don't really define what they think because everybody has their own definition of love. Yeah. But the way that people wanted to see it was um, Queen Victoria described her um, Prince Albert as, oh, to feel I was and I'm loved by such an angel as Albert was too great a delight to describe. He is perfection. Oh, how I love and adore him, I cannot say. So they want love, chest swelling, cheek rouging, Pulse pumping, teeth grinding, fervor. Not only fashionable, but royally sanctioned. Do you know what a Prince Albert means in a modern sense? Yes, setting? I'm very okay. aware of what a Prince Albert means in a modern sense. It's very funny that we go from that description to a Prince Albert. Uh, for those who don't know, a Prince Albert is one of the most common male genital piercings. Um, you really don't want to look it up. It is kind of gross to see. 
but yes, it involves large pieces of metal being attached to the urethra. Uh, it is great. It is wonderful. And I, I'm still trying to picture like what a Victorian woman is looking for in terms of love. Like, you know, I just want a man who I don't have to fan, and so he so he knows what I want. You know, I want a man who I can put down the fan, and we'll just communicate openly. So this reminded me of a conversation that I had with mom a couple days ago. Um, our mother, we were sitting at her kitchen table, and um, I was like, hey, mom, you should really watch that show on Netflix called How to Build a Sex Room, because I really enjoy it. Like, I think it's a great way to open about the, up the conversation about, like, kinks and sex in general, and kind of get rid of that taboo subject that many people have issues talking about. And she turns to me because we were um, ju- just chatting about the show. She goes, is that why when I signed into our joint Etsy account, there was a lot of sexual innuendos and um, toys of that sort? And then I remembered that I used our joint Etsy account to look up St. Andrew's crosses um, for the sole reason of wanting to put a St. Andrew's cross in my living room and see if anybody noticed that it was what it actually was. Incredible. Yeah. So um, awkward conversation. And now my mom thinks that I am a... Sex pervert. Yep. So... um, Moving into more talk about debutantes um, and of things of that sort, um, for the higher classes, the function of marriage was ba- still based around social mobility rather than romantic ones. For debutantes, the transition to womanhood was marked by letting one's dress down and putting one's white feather decor- de- decorated hair up and rolling up a royal two royal. Uh, rolling up at a royal bar- ball to curtsy before and kiss the hand of Queen Victoria. I'm picturing like a montage in a movie where it's like it's time to take out the vampires and she's letting the dress down, putting her hair up in a bun, taking like a vintage old-timey blunderbuss off the wall. You've been watching too much Buffy. That must be it. Yeah. Um. Uh, and kiss the hand of Queen Victoria. Backing out of the room without tripping over your virginal frock sealed the debutante deal, and then you were free to pack in as many dances with eligible bachelors as the night allowed. Girls spent two to four seasons husband ha- hunting before they were considered spent. At that point, they had to hope a sudden illness struck a distant relative who had a foresight to leave them a massively generous annual income or that one of the young men they danced with several seasons before came to his amoeba slow senses and appeared with um, with them with more than a posy. Okay. Courtesy manuals were still consulted. So um, in in the chapter about the 1700s, it talked about manuals that kind of like um, discussed the etiquette at debutante balls. And so this has been a long-standing tradition where people publish manuals about rules and there's a whole manual on phanology and things of that sort. Yeah, Cosmopolitan's actually been around for 350 years. It's been, yeah, it's yeah. been really, yeah. Courtesy manuals were still consulted, but less commitment and respect with such dating advice being treated as humorous or satirical entertainment. The Etiquette of Love, Courtship, and Marriage, published in 1847, was one of the go-to manuals of the age, keen to explain the inequities of class and gender when it came to marriage. I'm picturing humorous manuals that are like, How to read yourself of an amorous bow in only (laughs) ten fortnights. A lady of high rank does not raise his husband does not raise her husband to the same position as she formerly occupied, but sinks down to his standard. 
but the gentleman raises the lady, however, much below himself as the same position in society. So if a woman is a duchess and she marries a common man, she then becomes a commoner. But if a duke marries a commoner, she becomes a duchess. Does that make sense? It, It does. I was reading about applications of slavery in early America earlier this week. Yeah. And one of the problems they ran into is a lot of white men liked having sex with their slaves. Yeah. And as a result, there were a lot of half white, half black children Mm -hmm. running around and Mm -hmm. there were concerns. Oh no, this is going to completely disrupt our like very clear racial hierarchy in America. What are we going to do? So I think it was Virginia was the first state to propose that all rules surrounding like racial purity would be based off of the race and class of the woman partner. So if you banged your female slave, this, that offspring would be a slave. Yes. If a white woman, God forbid, had sex with a black man, oh, yeah. oh this is going to be clipped and used out of context. I'm yep. very concerned. Um, that child would be treated as white. So there was these really weird, you know, rules established and then, you know, they, they added in additional complications with things like one drop rules. But they, they said laws of inheritance are based off of, you know, the woman partner. And so it's interesting that, that I guess kind of evolved from this whole classist thing where it's if you have power already, yeah. you can lose it if you're a woman, you can gain it if you're a man. Yeah. Um, so it talks a lot about calling cards. Um, so this was basically a way of keeping track of who was you were going to dance with at a certain ball that night. So people would like write on your card. It's like a dance card, basically. Um, but to begin with, the Victorians used calling cards rather than today's per, per, personal, la, 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 la. personalized business cards only without a Twitter handle and endless blog Insta listings framed onto a background pic of your last long hol- holiday. They were decorated with a name and artistic design, and they were first dropped off by potential guests or suitors at the house of the host they wished to visit and left with the servants. If a visit was agreeable, a host would signal this by sending one of their own cards. Young ladies used their mother's calling cards and received those of prospective suitors on a tray. They then would have the power to return the cards or not, perhaps the single most important power move offered to women during the entire courtship process apart from out-and-out refusal. You know, when I was a freshman in college, I read a bunch of business books about, like, how to present yourself as a person seeking employment and how to get opportunities. And one of the big things they stressed was you should always be handing out your business card. You should always have a business card on hand to give people. And so it might have been my summer before my freshman year. It might have been the winter break of my freshman year. I ordered 500 business cards with my information on it. I think I got through about 15 of them. I'll take one. No, they've they've long since been recycled. Now. You should send them to all of our Patreon subscribers. They've long since been recycled, <laughs> Naomi. Um. So, the last thing that I would like to mention about this time period is no, that's not the last thing I want to mention about this time period. But I do want to mention the last thing I want to talk about with dating and um, like debutante balls, proper dating world is that the golden rule of dating during this period was never introduce a lady to a gentleman, but always the gentleman to the lady. Huh. Yeah. 
Don't ask me why. Just go with it. Love letters became really big during this time period. It talked a lot about how um, people were really involved with letter writing and florology. So like fanology, it's basically the same but with um, herbs and flowers. Um, so you can give a bunch of flowers, you can give one, but, um, daffodils signaled new beginnings, daisies, innocence, and lilacs meant a first emotions of love. Um, and there's still dictionaries to this day that like unpack the symbolism behind them, but those dictionaries became very popular there during this time. So flowers were the most common gift brought to parties or even visiting. So special attention was given to them, um, and what they conveyed. So letters, there was a whole manual, of course, talking about letters. So the Letter Writer uh, for Lovers, published in 1878, advised that if the engaged couple were really loving and wishing a wish to express their feelings in loving phrases, let them by all means do so, but let this be done in a gentleman and ladylike manner. Um, where you put the stamp also gave out a romantic message. According to the Reeves Pocket Companion of 1886, a stamp placed upside down on the left-hand corner of the envelope signaled I love you, while one placed the right way up on the top right-hand corner meant I only wish your friendship. Upside down in the right-hand corner um, was even more damning. Right, no more. Uh, This, again, you know, it's people trying to come up with these magical rules for courtship that everyone knows and yeah. if you're not using them and you're an idiot. What if you were just super sheltered and you just put your stamp where the stamp was supposed to go in the little pocket where it says stamp goes here? Yeah. Well, I, I was talking to RJ in our discussion of 500 Days of Summer and the, the main character, Tom, is kind of a huge asshole and makes a lot of assumptions about the object of his affection, Summer, and this is sometimes taken to humorous effect, sometimes taken to creepy effect, uh, sometimes both. Uh, But in one scene, early on after they've met each other, he steps into an elevator, he's just getting to know Summer, he's like, hey, Summer, how was your weekend? And she kind of looks off into space and goes, it was good. (laughs) And he's relaying this to his friends, and he's like, can you believe that? And they go, what? And he said, what she said, can you believe that? I'm like, what are you talking about? And he says, that probably means she met some guy at the gym and was banging him in her bed all weekend. I can't believe she would say this to me. I don't want to go out with someone with so little self-respect. I'm like, what are you on about, dude? <laughs> no, it's kind of like figuring out tone in text messages. Yeah. And again, like, text messages are so divorced from actual conversations. Yeah. You know, you, you hear they've done research and they're like 70% of meaning is conveyed in person. Yeah. Your subtle body connotations, how you're standing next to somebody, the distance between yourselves, uh, how loud or how quiet you're speaking. If your arms are crossed or not. Yeah, I mean, there, there's certainly elements of human communication that can be articulated through text, but I, I think for the most part, you're, you're always going to have some degree of ambiguity and you shouldn't try to understand that without having actually met somebody in person and interacted with them. I think that's good advice. Thank you. But I did just realize as you said that and talked about RJ that if he ever has a daughter, he's going to name her Summer. No. <laughs> I, will, I, I will murder people before that happens. Good luck going to jail. <laughs> It'll be worth it. So... um. There was a tight code for people that got engaged um, and how they should behave in public. A lady should conduct herself almost as though she's already married. All other suitors, if she is 
possess more than the one she already has accepted should be made thoroughly to understand for once and for all that she's no longer accepting their intentions. Um, An engagement ring could help, of course, but diamonds were not used. It was just like rings set with stones um, or or some big stones. It doesn't. I found a boulder. I found a boulder. I found a cool rock. I found a stone on the side of the road. Okay, no joke. It would be very cute if you got married to someone and it was all cool rocks you'd found on like hikes you went on. Oh, that'd be so cute. Yeah. Because that's meaningful to you. It's not like societal's values. Yeah. Societal's. Societal's. Um, And (laughs) Um, it became very big for men to start suing women if they had thought that their woman was unchaste. Hell yeah. Time to put those unchaste ladies in their place. You could also cite them for um, illness and immaturity or mental incapacity, you could literally break off the marriage, but in order to do so, you had to sue them. Yeah, because my, my woman's too stupid. <laughs> mental incapacity, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, so working class women were obviously treated a little bit different than everybody else. Um, no. Yeah. <laughs> working class women may have been toiling away in the factories and mills of England, but they had more freedom of their middle, middle and upper class court counterparts when it came to sex and courtship for a start they left the house each day and if they did not walk took public transport alongside men to their workplaces which gave them ample opportunities to meet potential suitors the opportunities for meeting in entertainment venues were greater too of course there was no season if they were a factory worker but there was church music halls museums and the theater where they might be even more opportunity to get their flirt on I'm picturing a romantic comedy set in this period where, like, this this mill worker woman is walking to work one day and just men are shouting her, nice hams, honey. (laughs) Um, So the last thing I want to mention about the 1800s um, or the early Victorian era was while pornography and prostitution flourished, attempts to clean up these streets of fallen women and deal with a woman's emotional hysteria via mechanical devices were flourishing. Masturbation remained the greatest sin, as damaging to men as it was to women, although there was additional warnings given to the fairer sex. Its indulgence will ruin the health, cause nervous disease, and destroy taste for healthy matrimonial intercourse by blunting the finer sexual feelings. From the Wife's Handbook by Dr. Henry Albert Albutt in 1886. You said mechanical devices. Does that mean robots have been taking our jobs? Yes. Even that era? Even in the early Victorian era. Damn. So moving into the late Victorian era, we talk a lot about the themes of the century. So vampirism was very big (laughs) in the late Victorian era. Um, It was seen as mystical and romantic. Another theme, syphilis. Another theme, hysteria. And sexuality became the reason why everyone is fearing the upcoming century. So opening to this conversation was open opening of this conversation was the fear that people felt about sexuality and how this conversation was opening up in such a way that prostitution became a lot more open um, and obviously pornography, masturbation, things of that sort that we mentioned in the last chapter. That's interesting because you can sort of see the myth of the vampire as a being who's open about his sexuality and desires, who corrupts other people to his side. But in that, you also have kind of a metaphor for STIs where vampirism is something that one person has that they choose knowingly to spread to other people. Well, some people don't know that they have STIs. 
gonorrhea and chlamydia. Well, I'm saying from from like a, like a cultural understanding yeah. of things. Okay. Like, oh my sure. god, you know, there's all these deviants lurking our streets, trying to corrupt our women and all of that. And and you know, this stuff could have come about, and there could be other applications of the metaphor. I'm sure, but yeah, it's fascinating that that's the cultural understanding at the time. So. During this time, they um, recorded the earliest forms of contraception. Given that many women were having unprotected sex, the free love movement also wanted to protect them against what they called enforced motherhood. Initially, this didn't mean supporting contraception, but other ways of having sexual relations. The Dianism concept, for example, which stressed non-penetrative sexual activity. Eventually, the debate around contraception grew so strong that it, its use was inevitable, but it would be another 20 years before a scientist specializing in coal and seed firms called Mary Stoops was, uh, would ref- revolutionize public thinking. In the meantime, a woman called Annie Besant would be tried for, obscen- for obscenity for publishing a pamphlet on contraception. Still, while there was a thirst for the contraband information, the pamphlet in question, The Law of Population, published in 1877, had sold 175,000 copies by 1891. So the next thing I want to talk about in this chapter, in this era, was bicycles and trains. And you're like, that's kind of freaking weird. No, I totally understand why you're doing that. Um, I do. So do do you want to explain? Uh, Yeah, so the dollop has a great episode. I think it's called Women in Transportation. Wow, really giving promoting another podcast on our podcast while recording a podcast. Naomi, if if they see that we're sending enough listeners their way, maybe they're going to do like a a joint date shout out dollop episode. Yeah, great. Because they talk about events in history. But yeah, the the episode deals with the fact that women were strongly encouraged to not use basic forms of transportation like horses, bicycles, and trains for the longest time. Uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, there were concerns that if you rode a bicycle or a horse, you might like burst your hymen, and oh my God, your <laughs> chastity would be gone, or that you'd get significant sexual pleasure from the vibrations. And so women were told uh, for the longest time to ride side saddle, where both of your legs are on the side of the horse rather than draped over the back of the horse. And this caused a number of deaths <laughs> when like horses would fall over laughing. and the woman would be crushed. Uh, but the same thing happened with trains. The same concerns were brought up again. But then there was also the belief that, like, women's uteruses would explode at high speeds. And so women shouldn't be allowed on high-speed devices. Yeah, it's a very fascinating episode. But I can definitely understand why you're bringing it up in this context. It's new exotic forms of transportation where, oh, my God, women can be independent and meet people. Well, another reason why trains were places that women weren't supposed to be was because they people were under the impression that trains were places for worldly women and murders. So what? if you were needing to go places, you obviously were promiscuous because no woman needed to travel without a chaperone. Unfortunately, that seems accurate based on the logic <laughs> of the time. <laughs> So Joel just took away all of what I was going to say. So I'm going to move into early drag balls. And you're like, drag balls? In the 1850s, London was the scene of secret drag balls and alternative guides to nightlife would would tell you what saloons, coffee houses, or streets to frequent if you wanted to be picked up. So this is men seeking men, men seeking women. This is all homosexual activity. Ooh. Yeah. 
So um, in 1885, stories of prosecutions under the Criminal Law Amendment Act frequently made the press, although they concentrated on cases in the capital city, despite capital city in England, despite there being ample prosecutions around the country. Meanwhile, well-to-do men seeking homosexual adventures, including the author Somerset Maugham and Lord Alfred Douglas, followed the example set by Lord Byron some 50 years earlier and embarked on the kind of Mediterranean sex tourism to give their, get their needs met. Greece, Turkey, and Italy, in particular Naples and Sicily, and the island of Capri became their sexual Eden. For a place called Sicily, you'd think, no. <laughs> They'd have sy- syphilis? Oh, no, I like cis people. Oh. Yeah. So um, that's all I have on the Victorian era. Let's uh, move into... I was really interested in Victorian gay things for a while. I was working on a project that involved researching gay people throughout history. Yeah. And it's really shocking how well-developed of a culture of drag and like secret erotic encounters the victorians developed uh the homosexual the homosexual the (laughs) encyclopedia of homosexuality has like a lot of detail on what this was like but you know again it's crazy when people are like gay people are new gay people are aberrations gay people aren't representative of like normal culture it's like dude they've been around for forever they've been doing this in secret you have rich upper crust lords arranging giant orgies on a weekly basis this this is not a new phenomenon due to corruption by modern media or modern technology or modern whatever it's it's just a part of human nature deal with it well i think it's interesting that you bring up like sexual activity in terms of like literally anyone because in this chapter that i'm about to read it's called the edwardian era um so this is like 1901 to 1910 um it talks about early swinging Mm -hmm. so swinging of couples was also said to be um unholy and like you couldn't do it so they Mm -hmm. had to also find the back alleyways of doing things like homosexuals during this time period as well because in order to get their sexual needs met they needed to think outside of the box and in doing this they could be arrested yeah i I should emphasize too this was not just hookup culture we're talking about there were a lot of gay people and committed long-term relationships as well including like eligible ladies who'd live together and they'd be like oh it's susan up on the hill with her cousin myra or something and sometimes like the communities would recognize exactly what it was and just like not give them any shit and other times it was you know men who were deeply in the closet having to pretend that they were you know living with their brother as they both pursued accommodations i'm not saying you to homosexuals oh no i'm saying you to the fact that you said they were cousins Yeah, Uh, sorry, but there's been this image in my brain this entire time of like an old-time English constable coming across like two men making out in the forest and being like, but's all this about? (laughs) But's all this about? So um, I mentioned the themes of the late late Victorian era, but the themes of the Victorian dating, uh, the Edwardian, what am I saying? I don't know. If Victorian dating was characterized by romance, Edwardian love was characterized by revelry. So, let's move into dress, because I thought this was pretty interesting. As Miss Pritchard advised, which Miss Pritchard um, did a manual on dress during this time, um, don't, whatever the fashion may be, wear a lot of jewelry. Secondly, don't wear a number of diamonds or other precious stones by day. It is never in good taste. Thirdly, don't wear a large number of rings. It's very vulgar. And don't show the beauty of the rings or of the hands. And fourthly, don't wear a fine gown and shabby boots. To do so stamps a woman at once. 
The key silhouette for women of the Edwardian era was achieved mainly by the virtues of the S-shaped corset, tightly laced at the waist to force the hips back, thereby thrusting the bosom forward in, that was known as the pointer pigeon shape. Imagine naming that. So attractive. Combined with the right petticoat, skirts, and bodice, this was covered with either a full gown or an elaborate blouse and a full gourd skirt, often with the leg of mutton sleeve, which was meant to contrast with a tiny trained and belted waist. The only difference between day wear and evening wear, as with Victorian fashion, was a much lower cut neckline of the bodice, which could be concealed with an elaborate necklace if the company called for it. Hair dyeing was a no-no and only a little makeup was allowed with the cakey foundation absolutely discouraged, mainly because it forced women to keep a Botox tight smile in order not to crack it. As Miss Pritchard had it again, the paste clings to skin in such a manner that for a desired countenance to be achieved, emotions, whether they be joy or sorrow, must be suppressed. Overall, young women were encouraged to look youthful without excessive adnor adornation or false aid natural beauty was what would attract a man i want the natural beautiful lady with the mutton arms the mutton arms and yeah the, i that like s hip the the pigeon the pigeon shape. that s that s yeah I guess. well i mean it's it sounds crazy now but we've had very distinct changes in what's considered the ideal woman's body throughout time you know now it's interesting that it's expected you have this like very tiny upper body and this just huge butt and i don't know if that's there's a comparable beauty standard in history well i think it's really funny because in the early 2000s you like watch movies and they're like my ass is so big and that's like seen as like a bad thing but now it's like the bigger the ass the more ass you want basically yeah yeah um so it's just interesting how things have changed in just 20 years so during this era there's a rise of strange women and i'm putting quotes around that in 1891, a case had reached a court concerning whether a wife must live with her husband. It was decided that she had the right to free movement and that he could not use force to keep her with him. Another small but pioneering victory in the quest for female liberty. So I'm just imagining you're married to someone and you're like, hey, I want to live alone. And he's like, no, you cannot do that. So he takes this case to court and he's like, I'm going to sue you because you're not living with me. But let's stay married. Um, but let's just see if you're going to stay with me and what the court rules. I don't think that she wants to be married still to this guy after he sued her. I disagree. That's one of the most romantic things a man can do. Okay, that's fair. Women's magazine, much like women's magazines, much like today, often featured male writers offering their view on women. In an article for the American publication... (laughs) How's that different? (laughs) Ladies Home Journal in 1907, a self confessed bachelor wrote quite radically i've often agreed with william morris that men were naturally meant to be cooks and housemaids and performed those duties far better than women i go further and agree to believe uh, to the belief that women and not men ought to be priests and doctors and that their work lies he- there granted this did not really explain why he had persisted in her ba- his bachelordom but it was demonstrate it does demonstrate that men were prepared to make it known that they had held women in high intellectual esteem That was, like, one man out of, like, a bajillion. Yeah. That guy has, like, a domination fetish. He's like, and women should only wear big boots to step on me with. Yep. However, women were still not to be overeducated lest they become bores. A little French and dancing was thought adequate for a middle to upper classes. And just being a woman, because womankind was not acknowledged capable of intellectual strivings, didn't mean that she was to be treated with less gentility. Um, Etiquette manuals were still intimately consulted, 
intermittently intermittently consulted and provided a wealth of information on social propriety. So calling, social callings were still a thing at this time, but I want to move into the juicy part of the Edwardian era. Ooh. Juicy Edward. The term tea time that provided both available and already married well-to-do men and women of the age with an opportunity for sexual frisson. So if you were called to tea at another man's at another man's house, let's just say a woman was offered tea time at another man's house, it meant it was code for we are going to do some swinging. What? No. No, this is like inviting someone up for coffee. There's, there's. I'm literally going to get to that. It literally mentions that in this. Okay, shut up. Husbands in particular were actually expected to go out to tea, even with other men's wives. If not out to their club, it was not rare for them to be, to find themselves to be the only caller once they arrived in a lady's invitation. Servants knew to stay, steer clear of the invitation of tea and was soon widely accepted as a euphemism for more. The equivalent of today is coming up for coffee. This is like people saying, well, you can tell a couple's into swinging when they have a pineapple in their house. And I stand by that. Upside down. I heard something, uh, I think this was on the Phoenix subreddit. Someone was like, you know, I used to live in Sun City, and they said that if you had a large white rock in your front yard, you you were into swinging. And it's like, oh, I gotta put this a white, is Phoenix. <laughs> big white rock in my front yard then. <sighs> There's lots of white rocks in Phoenix, believe it or not. <laughs> So um, expectations of women's purity began to gently shift. A story published in 1907 edition of the Ladies' Home Journal entitled The Confessions of an Engaged Couples, whereby the pair admit previous romances to one another delicately demonstrates how women were now allowed to admit to having been in in love before becoming betrothed. While reliable mainstream medical information was only addressed formally to married women, it was almost certainly reaching the hands of dating women who wanted to protect themselves against unwanted pregnancies and STIs. In fact, Edwardian men and women were having premarital sex and using contraception to help them conceal the fact. Rubber condoms were first available in the 1870s. They weren't disposable. Instead, they were washed with carbolic soap. Ah, then soluble pessary pessaries how do you say that p e s s a r i e s i don't know okay started to be sold in the 1880s by 1908 the labeth conferences of bishops noted with alarm the growing practice of artificial restriction of the family both inside and outside of marriage well ain't that interesting so this focus on the relationship between sexuality and public health also benefited women in other ways. The first, the female gynecologist, Elizabeth Blackwell, used her scientific knowledge to assert some powerful new truths about female sexuality. Firstly, that removing healthy ovaries to cure everything from irregular periods to epilepsy had to stop. And secondly, that the demands of women are greater than those of men. They desire more and more and thought of the devo- devotion of those they love. Good for is that that seems a little sexist. Um, everything at this time was a little sexist. Yeah, there was no radical feminists during this time that were like, "Oh yeah, everything should be completely equal." They just wanted to vote, man. They were like, "Wouldn't it be fun? Wouldn't it be a larf if we could go to the voting booths?" I mean, that's all we can expect. No, that's that's, I guess, to be expected. Unfortunately. It's hard to envision a better world and don't even have a firm baseline to sit upon. 
Naomi, we are coming up on our hour mark. Okay. Should we put a pin in it and come back next week to discuss World War One? I? I would love to. I hope everyone has a great week. Thank you so much for joining us um, this day that you have decided to listen to us. I don't know if it'll be evening or morning or midday or afternoon or after a nap. You know, I don't know the time that you're listening. Be on the ISS and time doesn't really have a meaning. You're really true. Yep. And have a great week. Uh, Goodbye. Uh, Sorry, before we go, um, I just want to make sure we attribute our sources properly. Uh, this is the book Curious History of Dating. Naomi, who is the author of A Curious History Nitchie of Dating? Hodgson. Nitchie Hodgson. Uh, thank you, Nitchie Hodgson, for your work. Um, if Naomi has been reading any direct passages, it is taken from that book. Uh, and again, I pulled some information from the World Population Review website as well as Wikipedia on the fact that child marriage is still allowed in the United States. Woo! And I'm proud to be an American, American. where at least I know I can marry 14-year-olds with parental consent and judicial approval. We gotta stop singing this. People might think we're conservatives. There's gonna be a lot of clips from this episode taken out of context. (laughs) Okay, thank you all. Bye for now. Thanks for the use of our theme music, which is the song Drop by Ketza. You can find more of their music online at ketza.uk. You can also find Date These Guys online on Twitter and Instagram at Date These Guys, or visit our website at datetheseguys.org. If you have questions you'd like us to discuss in the podcast or marriage proposals for either of us, shoot us an email at datetheseguys at gmail.com.